Hello and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Apollo Ono, the most decorated U.S. Winter Olympian, philanthropist, entrepreneur, author, and my Olympic teammate in 2002 and 2006. Hi, Apollo. Thank you so much for joining today. Um, It's really exciting for me to have you on because, you know, while we competed almost side by side for a decade, uh, I feel like we never really got to know each other. And I always observed you from, from afar. And uh, you know, it was thrilling to watch your career represent the U.S. with you in 2002 and 2006. Welcome, and I'm excited to actually hear from you this time. I know. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So there's so much that I want to cover. You've had such an interesting life. So I want to jump to something I read in um, a summary of your first book, which has an amazing name, Zero Regrets, um, something I think we all aspire to. But I read that you had a very, very deep soul-searching week at the age of 15. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about it, what prompted it, and if this was kind of a pivotal moment between being a normal person or pursuing an Olympic dream. Yeah, um, I'm glad you asked that. So I guess the best way to explain that 15-year-old kind of fork-in-the-road moment, right, where I was forced to make a kind of life decision on which path I wanted to pursue I was in a very unique position, and not unique um, that meant that I was special. I think that I was blessed enough and grateful to have such an incredible father who had the foresight to use tough love when needed. And you know, I think all kids um, go through some type of a strenuous relationship with their parents at some point in time. I grew up in a single parent household. Um, in Seattle. My father was a Japanese immigrant who came to the United States when he was only about 17, 18 years old, didn't speak the language, uh, really had to struggle when he arrived. So he was really the epitome of the Americana dream of coming to this country in search of for something better and more creative and those types of freedoms associated with coming to the United States that he didn't have in Japan at the time. This is many, many years ago. And um, when I was born, you know, my father and my mom, they had divorced right away. Um, almost immediately upon kind of my birth, right? So after the first year, they decided to separate. My father took uh, sole custody over me. He felt that he was the one who could provide the most love and nurturing and also financial capability and resources to where we wouldn't be massively struggling. Now, we in no way, shape, or form had money to spare um, at all. I mean, I remember, I didn't know this until many years later, but a lot of the kids I was I kind of grew up with told me that I would wear basically the same white t-shirt every single day, but I would wash it and then put it back on and wash it, and put it back on. So I didn't, you know, when you're a kid, you don't recognize some of these, um, you know, these challenges that the parents are facing. Um, and so as I was growing, my dad recognized that I had this incredible talent for sport. Um, and it was really the only thing that helped me concentrate and disperse of massive amounts of energy throughout the day. So that by the time I got home at night, he wouldn't feel like, you know, he had to entertain me even further. Um, and so, you know, my father would work all day and then I would come home and he started placing me in these after school activities. Fast forward to me seeing the sport for the first time, falling in love with it, having a natural gift and talent for the sport beyond my even wildest conception and dreams um, to me becoming accepted to be a part of this junior development training program in Lake Placid, New York. And this was at the age of 14. So this is one year prior to that kind of pivotal moment. And so I was accepting this program, um, the arguments and kind of the battling for authority inside the household was happening routinely between my father and I, I, <laughs> yeah, I was just, I was that kid who, whatever my dad said, I would just disagree with and I would tell him that I had the answers. And so by the time, you know, my father was essentially saying, look, this is an incredible opportunity for you. You need to be a part of this junior development program. You can potentially go on to become an Olympic athlete and represent the United States. It was like his dream, right? I was doing something special that was different. It was out of the norm. And um, it was it was just something that I couldn't recognize at the time. I was 14 years old. I didn't know the importance. I didn't know the sacrifice or what it would take or the dedication. I didn't know none of those things. I was just a kid who wanted to hang out with his other friends during the summer in Seattle. And so my father packs my bags, forces me to go to the airport. Upon dropping me off in the, in the Seattle SeaTac airport, I kind of waved goodbye to my father and he had told, he told me, he said, look, if you don't like this training environment, you can come home after one month, but you have to try this because I know it's the best for you. 
And so I had other plans in my head. So as my father drives off, I go to the payphone, I pick up the phone. I then call my friend to pick me up from the airport and tell him I was supposed to go to New York that day, but I bounce around from house to house all while he thinks that I'm in New York. Um, Fast forward again, my father finds out that I don't go. He then two weeks later drives me to the airport. He flies with me. We go to the the training center. Um, You know, I find my place within that training center. I have a good relationship with the coach. I kind of find my own passion for the sport and I recognize it. This is something that I actually do have a unique talent for. And so after about seven months of training in that, that kind of structured environment, I went to the world team trials. This is, 19, this is 1996, but the world team trials are for the 1997 world team. I ended up actually winning that, winning that trials. So I, here I am at the age of 14. I have beaten all of the other kids, but you know, mostly adults who are now competing to have their slot on the world team to go and represent themselves on the world stage. And I know in figure skating, you know, a lot of the athletes are quite young as well, but it was the first time in short track that someone who was 14 was beating someone who was 37. And so this was a big shock to the U.S. speed skating community. You know, all of the buzz and everyone's like, oh, the hype, oh, this is the, this is the next prodigy for the U.S. He's going to kind of, you know, revamp the way that U.S. speed skating thinks about the sport. Um, and I, I just was naturally gifted, and it just took a little bit of guidance in order for me to get to that point. Now, after the World Championships and going and compete with the other team members, I come back home to Seattle, and now we're in the summer of, we're in the summer of 1997 going into the Olympic season. So the Olympics will be, you know, this is called this July and the Olympics are in February, 1998. The Olympic trials are in December. Now I go back home to Seattle instead of training in the off season, I just screw around, kind of do my own thing um, and essentially squander that entire summer that should be used. That should have been used for training on what I like to call looking back, just kind of being a kid being a very normal kid, eating fast food, hanging out late at night at friends' houses, not training, going through puberty, all these things, right? And um, I arrived back in, the, and in, in the, the training program, and now I'm 25 pounds heavier than I was the year before, 20, 22 pounds or something like that, okay? I'm going through puberty, um, you know, acne, the whole, the whole thing, confused, you know, uh, and I remember on the day that we were doing the body composition skinfold pinch test, I remember taking my shirt off and having the other, the guys who I just beaten, like, you know, only, you know, several months prior kind of look over and be like, oh, well, he's pretty much out of the running for this year's Olympic team. And they loved it, right? Because I was a major competitor. For them, it's like do or die. It's like I, I'm committing my life to make this Olympic team and this gets throwing it away. So even then, uh, I still had enough skill and talent to make that team but I just did not commit myself. And so this leads me to the moment in when I was 15 years old. So after I had gone to those Olympic trials in 1998, I finished dead last, 16th place. So there's top 16 that are allowed after the time trials to be consolidated to see who competes for those top four spots to be named to the Olympic team. And my father sees this and he's, he's devastated. And he's devastated for a number of reasons. One, my father's Japanese, Japanese-American. Um, both of my grandparents still live near Nagano, where the Olympic Games were going to be held. So this was my kind of homecoming to the homeland, right, to where my bloodline uh, was. And so my, my grandparents already bought tickets to the Olympic Games. Everything had to be done in advance. And I didn't make it. Not only did I not make it, I kind of threw away the opportunity. I just gave up. So my father had recognized this kind of negative self-destructive behavior. And it wasn't so much that I didn't make the team that they could celebrate. It was that he saw that I could have made the team, even with little effort, but I wasn't allowing myself to really be nurtured and, and grow and flourish within the sport. So he picks me up from those Olympic trials. He takes me back over to this area called Copalis Beach, which is southwest of Seattle, about three hours. Um, it's, it's a really beautiful, very deep, rich in nature. Um, if you're on the East Coast, it's very similar to the Adirondacks. It's kind of like a Lake Placid, right? Um, except it's it's, it's, a, it's the Northwest version. So it is, you know, dark, luscious green, the middle of winter. Uh, it's raining every single day. It pours every single day, especially this time of the year. But it, there's a sense of beauty that I can now appreciate. But when I'm 15 years old, I don't want to be there. There's no video games. I have no friends. There's no phone. There's, 
nothing to do. And my father drops me off alone in this place, in this cabin that we used to visit. And he says, you need to come to a decision on what you want to do with your life. I will not allow you to throw away your natural talent and ability. And even if you did, whatever the next path that you choose, you are going to understand why you are choosing that path and fully commit yourself. It's not about the outcome. It's about that process that you go through, which is a very philosophical kind of viewpoint. And also, it's also extremely Japanese, right? We can never control the outcome entirely. But those things that we can control is the processes that we focus on on a day-to-day basis. So at the age of 15, this is, this, is, this is foreign alien language to me. And although I'd been around the other national team members, uh, yeah, it was my father telling me this. So there was even more resistance. So he literally drops me off and then drives back to Seattle. So here I am in this cabin. There's no one really around. There's no other human beings who like to visit this part of the country during this time of the year. It's really desolate. There's not much there. Uh, and I just start mindlessly training. And so it was during those seven or nine days that I was at this cabin that I started to have this internal, inquisitive, introspective process of like, why am I here? What is important? Do I want to try speed skating again? Does, do Americans even know about speed skating? Is this important? Do I want to go back to school and study you know, finance or something? I mean, what is it that I'm good at and what I want to do? And so um, you know, a lot. Look, there was a lot of questions, a lot of anger, a lot of sadness, a lot of resentment towards my father. But I think in the end, um, I I decided to kind of basically roll the dice and say, okay, I recognize kind of the cold hard truths of what has happened in the past. I made mistakes. Um, I could have, would have, should have, and that's the worst feeling in the world as an athlete. And I'm willing to really dedicate myself to another shot at these games. And, and you know, look, look, I mean, sports is extremely volatile. Short track speed skating, you can train your entire life for one specific moment and then you get sick that day, your your equipment's not working properly, you're late, you, someone bumps into you, you step on a, you know, a block and you fall, you get disqualified. There's the, a, a thousand different scenarios. So that risk of pursuing another four years dedicated towards this thing, it, to me, it, you know, at the age of 15, you don't really recognize the time frame. But I felt deep down that I, I just didn't give it the due effort necessary. And so that unanswered question needed to be answered with my effort. And so my effort was the only way for me to truly exhaust that option. And that's exactly what I did. And so I, I went on and I, I, I went back to um, Lake Placid to train all while the Olympic team is competing in Nagano and we're watching the Olympics. And um, I just remember, you know, after telling my father that decision and him coming to pick me up and then telling him on the way home that this was, this is what I'm willing to do. My dad was obviously ecstatic because he felt like that was the right decision to make, but he didn't want to force it upon me. He didn't want to do it in a way that I, he was making the decision for me. He wanted it to come for myself. And so it was the right move for my father. I'm sure it was very painful and difficult for him at the same time. Uh, and looking back, at, when I talk to other parents now, they're completely flabbergasted. Like, I can't believe your father dropped you off at the age of 15 alone. You know? And, um, you know, I think that's also the benefit of having a single parent household is that you you grow up quite early. You learn how to take care of yourself just in terms of basic stuff, like cleaning and making food and it's, it was not an issue in that perspective. It was more just, I think, being away from any type of, you know, parenting figure. So it was it was a really powerful moment in my life because the pain that I had from hearing those noises from the parents of talking, that buzz of, oh, another statistic, oh, he could have, oh, he just, you know, he cracked under pressure, all these things that um, served as fuel later on in my life, but it was more the pain of, not preparing properly and the pain of feeling like I could have actually, I could have actually made that team. And I carried that pain, that, that, that remembrance of that memory deep inside me for a long period of my career. And I use it as a tool, good or bad. I I use it as a tool, as a motivating factor to never feel that ever again which I think happens in life in many perspectives, whether you're in sport or not, right? There's some micro trauma that happens that then serves as a motivation tool much later in life. I think that's a very powerful story because it brings up so many things. You know, I think watching the Olympic Games, you see these 
dedicated superhumans um, that have sacrificed their whole lives since the age of, you know, maybe three or five or seven. And maybe they deal with injuries or not being their best on that moment. But I think people don't see this struggle as as teenagers, as this coming of age, these choices. Like, do I give up an education? Do I give up friendship? Do I give up childhood? And it's this lonely repetition of, you know, day in and day out uh, at the ice rink. And, and like you said, you just don't know. Your equipment could fail. You could be sick. You could have an injury. Um, and, and these things do happen. Um, but there's something deeper that, that's that's compelling that you just know that there's this stone unturned and you have to see what you're capable of. And even if it drives you crazy and you're miserable, it's just this the next Olympics is this moment in time. It's this beacon that leads you, you know, like the sirens, like sometimes against your will, but you just know you have to get there. Um, and I think, you know, having to showing so much talent and promise at a young age, Dealing with being a kid and then coming back is just really powerful and I think important for people to understand that we're not just superhuman robots and it's we, we struggle with being human and all these other things of, of growing up. You know, something that's really important to highlight is everything that you've done since your Olympic Games and, and competing. And not only are you the most decorated American Winter Olympian of all time with eight Olympic medals, you became the face of American speed skating. But yet that wasn't that wasn't even enough because you started your transformation early while you were still competing and and you know I've I've talked to other people about this and and some people are just so focused and that's all they see until they retire and for others it's just knowing that that this will be taken away from you this Adonis of a body that you've built in your youth it it has to fade and the challenges that most people deal with when they retire in their sixties athletes deal with, you know, as teenagers or in their 20s. And it's it's who are you? Where does your identity come from? And tell me how that motivated your transition and kind of the the important or pivotal moments that have happened as you've left speed skating and into what you're doing now. That transition from, you know, Olympic athlete or, you know, I, I know that we were chatting about this through text briefly, you know, is that like massive loss of identity and that reinvention process that has to occur. And everyone faces this, not just Olympic athletes. But I think the difference is for those who have had success in the Olympic sport, whether you make an Olympic team, whether you go and get an Olympic medal, that is that is your identity. Everything that you know, everything that you love has been taught to you. I like to think of myself as having figured it out early. It doesn't feel that way many times. I feel that I I still struggle with identity. I still struggle with reinvention. I think now I just understand the tools and the attributes that I've learned through sport much better. I understand my strengths and weaknesses much better. Um, and as I grow, I learn more about myself, about what is possible. And also as we learn more about the brain, neuroscience, and human behavior, we can recognize certain behavioral patterns that maybe perhaps would have worked in sport, but in you know civilian life, they're not the most uh, they're not the most decisive um, you know, attributes to use on a day-to-day basis. So the real, uh, you know, look, I, in 2006, when I had gone to my second Olympic games, I had five medals. I thought that that was the pinnacle. I thought this was what life, this was why I'm here. This is the sole purpose of why I'm here. Collecting medals. Uh, Yeah. Just like it's, you you live so much in this bubble, right. That you think that that is the most important thing that's going on in the world, in your in your psyche, mm-hmm. right? Because you're so isolated from the outside external factors, unless you're going to college at the same time or you have a completely separate set of friends, which is all fantastic if you do. I didn't. I was very much a byproduct of a hyper-focused Olympic athlete who did it by the book to a T. I didn't care about anything else. I didn't want to do anything else. I had no parachute when I jumped out of this plane. It was all or nothing. So it's true do or die, which lends a significant amount of strength in that process, but it's very bad planning. No one goes into business thinking that, right? There's no, you always have to think about all scenarios. I did recognize that this dream would end. I just didn't know what it would feel like. And I, it's difficult to explain it to anyone. I also didn't know when. Um, I was young enough 
you know, going into that final four years, you know, I went to this reality show, Dancing with the Stars, to kind of open up my eyesight and my mind to potential the entertainment sector. And is there business here? Could I explore this in some way? Uh, is there life after speed skating? What does that look like? It also skewed and manipulated my view on what was actually real life. Because the reality show is not real life. You know, it, it's really not. Um, it's a very produced show and it's an amazing show. It's done very well, but it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's controlled in a way that only sees the external in a very certain perspective. And so my, my process was I knew going into those final Olympic games that that would probably be my final Olympic games. I had understood that. It also allowed me to prepare in a certain way to make sure that I was in the absolute best possible physical and mental shape going to those games. And I also understood and, and appreciated the process. So my, my love and, and desire for the sport grew towards the end of my career, which I think is somewhat rare. Um, and I really appreciated the days, but also the, 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 the process itself was very difficult. But when I did retire, when subconsciously, you know, I call it whatever, day 18, the, the day after the, the closing ceremonies, and you wake up and you recognize that if you have made that decision to retire, or maybe you just aged out, you just don't have it anymore, or maybe you're injured, it's just something, right? Um, there's a very visceral and violent breakup that happens. I always call it like, like the big divorce. And it's, you know, I fell in love with this one person my whole life since I was, you know, this is your elementary school sweetheart that you know intimately, every in and out. It knows you, your deepest, darkest fears and insecurities and self-doubts, that it's shown you how strong you can be. And then like this, it tells you that it's found someone else who's younger, more attractive, better. Um, and it wants to celebrate that person. And no matter what you do, you're just not going to be good enough. And so everything that you've given in terms of identity was always tied to this, to this, you know, this sport, this thing, this Olympic path. And then uh, you you now are thrust into a world where you have no more guardrails, right? So whether you were an athlete who was driven by fear, whether you were driven by fire and motivation and hunger to win, whether you were driven by sadness, depression, rage, anger, whatever those tools are that you were driven by, you at least had these guardrails of the training structured environment so that you could kind of, you know, just to keep inching towards your goal, which was the Olympic Games. And anything was used as fuel. Um, and then you retire and those guardrails now go flat. And so there's nothing to protect you from getting very, you know, your athletic extreme OCD personality is highly celebrated as an athlete, whether you are a Tour de France rider, whether you're a figure skater, whether you do luge, whatever it is, those attributes are amazingly powerful in sport because they just use as this rocket fuel to catapult you towards this four year end, end goal of displaying your greatest, you know, strengths over those four-year training period for the world to see. And then now there's no more, there's no more guardrails. There's no more coach. There's no more structure. Uh, and if you have spent, if you did the dedication to say, okay, I'm going to also go to school while I'm competing, kudos to you. There's many who don't. And if you're not in a sport that is not recognized by university to get a scholarship, most likely you had to do it on your own. And so I, I, I recognize that like, even when I went to college early on, like I, you know, I wanted to study, I, I knew I wanted to study business and international marketing. And, but I, I would lie to you if I said I really cared about it because my mind wasn't there and there was no intent. There was no assertive nature to really focus on that. To me, if I was doing that, it was taking away from the sport. And I, and I, I, I bled the sport so much that everything I did on a daily basis, training wise with my teammates, I took very personally. So if I didn't dominate the training session, I hated myself immensely. It was, I was weak. I wasn't good enough, right? It's always these things that you have. Now, and now I never showed on the external. The external was this very stoic, extremely powerful. This guy has pain threshold that we've never seen him get tired. Like that was the external. Internal, I was a very scared fear of not being prepared enough, fear of not being good enough. Um, and then going and, and retiring and then looking in the world. And now you've got this blank sheet which I know you can relate with at a certain perspective. You got this blank sheet and you're like, what am I good at? Not only what am I good at, like, what do I want to do? What can I do? What is important to me? What passions do I have? I feel like I'm now, you know, I'm 27 years old. 
um, which is like around the time of a lot of the gaps. Whether you're 22, you're 30, look, you're still a baby. Um, and you're retired. You're retired. You've reached the pinnacle of competition. And now you're kind of looking down on this mountain and saying like, well, shit, there's only one place to go. I, I thought that this would be the kind of end all be all. And my life would just kind of make sense throughout. And I would be kind of set, so to speak. I mean, I don't know if I ever thought I'd be set financially, but I thought that There'd be a clarity I, that a purpose would have been achieved and there would be this right. internal calm. Yeah, like, like, yeah. And then, you know, exactly. And then I think the public and the community is just showing you love. And they're celebrating you and they're, oh, I love doing the Olympic Games. Oh, I love the Dancing with Stars, which also extends that, that identity even further, which makes it harder so to transition. It makes it harder if different. you have the adoration. But what you said just brings up. So many things um, that I've gone through and so many other athletes I've spoken to have gone through and that, you know, part of it is this fake it till you make it, right? You can't you can't show weakness, right? Because right. if you show weakness, not only does it give competitors an edge, it undermines your own psyche. Um, right. And as far as this sense of peace and clarity, we think that what we do is who we are, that we're human doings and not human beings. And we, I think athletes don't know how to be um, for the most part, um, especially at a young age. There's this insecurity. There's this, it's never enough. I'm not good enough. I can be better. I can do more. This is what's expected. And it's a very powerful motivator and very powerful driver. But ultimately, when you've got all this fuel and you you don't have a way to use it and burn it up, which is what happens when you retire— it, it can it causes a lot of questioning, almost maybe some self destruction, and it's like if I if I have all this fire and I was so successful at something, and then in your mid twenties you ask, what am I good at? What can I be known for? Where is my life going from here? I think a very competitive Type A person that's used to, like you said, you had guardrails. Um, I've always said that competing. In the Olympics, there's nothing as difficult as setting that goal, but there's nothing as clear. And then you get into the real world, and it's just there's no rules. It's all kind of wish-washy. You have to figure it out. Everyone's doing different things. Different things work for everyone. It's so different in sports. And it's this awakening when you decide to not be the, the shark in the little pond, but to be a tadpole in the ocean. And I've always found that it's breathtaking and wonderful, but the insignificance and sense of being lost can be absolutely terrifying. And and the fact that, you know, I've competed with you and I've followed your career, but I, I've never known that about you. And it's because as athletes, we wear this armor and, you know, we kind of parade around the world and, and then we're kind of adored for what we've done and what we've sacrificed. So you kind of think that you're alone in your fears and your insecurities and you're kind of afraid to share your weakness because it's, um, you know, it's, it's like kind of like Samson's hair. You don't want to like kind of cut that off and then it's like, who are you without your strength? I, I want to transition from this um, into something that's a little bit of a segue and it, I think it goes from leaving a world as a competitive athlete um, be, where it was all about success. And I'm not really sure I knew what happiness was, but I knew what success was. And I think after retiring, I'm really trying to uh, parse out the nuance between success and happiness and do they have to be so entangled? Or is my definition of success completely wrong and preventing me from being happy? Um, and so so I wanted to know, like, what is success for you? And is success the same thing as happiness? Is it fulfillment? Has that been an evolution for you? I think it has been an evolution. I, I, I agree with you that success was directly tied to performance when I was skating. There was no other metric. It was black and white. I think life is much different. Um, now, uh, I, for, for me personally, success is happiness and success are progress. Um, and that progress is, 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 is about just inching forward, um, understanding myself. Um, fulfillment to me is, is also unique, right? Because the word itself is, the word itself to me, it, it initiates a thought of feeling full, complacent, and um, static. But it's not. Right, but that's that's associated just, that's with weakness in a sense. Yeah, it's my 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 initial. If I'm full, 
fulfillment, um, I feel like I'm, is this it, right? Have I reached the state of nirvana? Have I meditated myself now to this incredible place where I want nothing and need nothing? Um, all of which, look, if you've reached that point, that's amazing. But for me, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, I think, look, happiness to me has definitely changed significantly. I think I went through a phase where I took with me that Olympic mindset, which I, I, I haven't eliminated, by the way. I still use it in many, many perspectives in, in different career paths and decisions in my life. Um, I've just learned to use it as a light switch. And I think that there's times when you can use your, you know, your experiences and character flaws to your advantage. And there's times when you should work on yourself to understand that you are here now. Um, tomorrow is never guaranteed, no matter who you are. And I think gratitude played a huge role in my ability to remain much more present so, you know, although I focus heavily on progress and feeling like I'm always kind of learning and understanding and getting better at something and I'm fueled by that and it's exciting to me and I find I'm, I'm, I'm like eternally optimistic and I'm eternally like enthusiastic about many different things, that happens to be for me a, a huge, gratitude has been such a huge reminder of everything that has happened everything that is today and everything that is tomorrow, but to really be just here and now. Uh, and it took me a long, long, long time to understand that I, I don't need much to actually be happy. We, we've got this, for me, I had this common misconception that I needed this, this, and this, and this. This was my, this was my list of things that I would consider if I needed to be successful and to be happy. And in reality, I didn't need, I didn't need 98% of those things. A lot of those things can be replicated by very simple, um, you know, tools and tricks to understanding why I'm driven from an ego perspective, what is truly important in my life, um, why I want and need to share connections uh, with other human beings, uh, and how and how can I leave some kind of an imprint either on myself or others that I feel like they also are progressing in some type of a positive perspective. And progress doesn't have to mean like I'm always looking for the next thing. I think none, nobody is perfect, right? So we're always trying to understand like, you know, whether you wake up and you have your routine and you meditate in the morning, like how can I progress to where I can get into flow state right away in the morning, right? We're kind of, I think human beings, we're always looking to improve upon ourselves. Um, but the, the gratitude in the morning has really been a huge shift for me uh, to help me understand why I am the way I am, why I've made the mistakes that I've made and living with those things and almost, almost smiling at them, right? As a part of this entire, you've got this huge chapter, uh, you've got all these chapters in your own life book and we're kind of writing them as we go along life and looking back on the past chapters, having that reflection. And then today also just understanding like what is, what makes me happy? What makes me you know, fulfilled? And it's, for me, it's very simple. You know, I just want to be, I want to be physically and mentally healthy. I love to learn. Um, and I love having some type of community where I feel like I can give um, some type of insight or something back to that community that has some value in some perspective. I think we all seek to be able to contribute to something, whether that's environmentally contributing, right? And saying, well, I'm going to start recycling more. I'm going to start offsetting my carbon credits or contributing in terms of you're writing a Yelp review, right? Like there's something there that we feel like we're contributing to something. And that's why all these great apps and companies exist is because we're contributing to somewhat of a, um, you know, an underlying economy that doesn't always relate in dollars and cents. And sometimes it does, right? Whether you're in finance or you're in business, I mean, you're always want to contributing something. It's something that feels good that goes far beyond holding those paper dollars, right? That we keep track of that score. I think what, what, that evokes for me is that as humans, we want to feel like we matter, that we exist. And we do that through finding meaning. And meaning is through a human relationship. I think there's this one, I think it's Ubuntu, or it's an African saying that a person is only another person. A person is only a person through another person's eyes. And so that we only see ourselves through how other people see us. And I think that unfolds a certain way as an athlete. And I think we have to unlearn and relearn what that means to be a part of a community, to have a relationship, to not be in the spotlight with all eyes on us for what we 
with our value being what we achieve, but rather the kind of relationships out of the spotlight and who we are in those those different relationships. You talk about chapters and this this time to reflect, and I think that that's very common in athletes in solo sports because we're always analyzing what did we do wrong? Why is my mind doing this? And you're trying to like pull it back. And through meditation or con- concentration exercises or visualization of a perfect performance four years down the road, I think we're very used to living in our minds. And and I think it's very important. What worked for us as athletes doesn't necessarily work for us to be happy and successful and fulfilled in in life. And so I know that you're working on a new book right now, and I'm very curious why nine years after you competed, what you're trying to say, um, if is it something that you just couldn't get off your chest or these ideas as you're as you're growing and as you're learning, is it is it about a shift in identity or like what what can readers expect to find and what really motivated you to be like I need to write a book right now? Yeah, so the the book idea came about because I, I think that you know as I look, I'm. I mean, you know, being 10 years retired, so to speak, you know, I've learned, I've done a lot of self deep work on my, on my own individual, um, try to learn how I can be better in my personal relationships, in the relationship with my father, uh, how I can manage the relationships with strangers, with business, with my career paths. Um, and I've had to try to reinvent myself throughout this process many, many, many times. Uh, and it's been very difficult to do so. And I feel that, you know, if I'm feeling this way, um, there's got to be thousands of people who also feel either at some point in their life lost or that there's perhaps a more accelerative, better path to helping to understand why we do what we do, why I have made mistakes in the past, and how can I mitigate the risk of making the same mistake in the future? If the end goal is to be happy and fulfilled, Perhaps there's a, a better path that we can have, a better conversation that we can have around these decisions and this process, whether you are someone who's 50 years old or someone who's just leaving college. So the book is really, it's focusing on reinvention. It's also focusing on loss of identity. Um, I'm trying to be as radically transparent as I possibly can be throughout the past you know, 15 years of my life and really opening up and, and hopefully showcasing that there's a lot of similarities between all of the vulnerabilities and the insecurities that I've had and also the unknown, the mistakes that I've made, and then kind of reflecting back and then understanding what perhaps has worked for me through understanding of both science and what other people have done many, many times over, those who have been very successful in either becoming serial entrepreneurs or reinventing themselves many, many times over. And I'm a firm believer that every five to seven years, you probably will have to have some sort of reinvention in some capacity. Now, if you're lucky enough to have the same job or the same career path for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, that's incredible. but I think we also, within those, we grow. There's a little micro cycles that we grow within that helps us as human individuals as we learn and understand ourselves a little bit better. So this book is really, you know, it's quasi selfishly a book to myself when I was younger. And it's like, look, Apollo, you're going to screw up a lot. Uh, you're going to make bad mistakes. You're going to chase the, the, the shiny things and things that really don't matter. And you'll probably do that for a period of time and you'll go through different phases in your life maybe this book can impart some insight and some knowledge from not only your future self, but also many of those who have somewhat figured it out and compiled it and distilled it in a way that you can use the toolkit as you go out, as you go out into your next career path, as you go and change from being an actor to uh, a real estate, you know, focused career path, as you go from uh, someone who is a, you know, a, you know, a, college graduate to, you know, studying, you know, psychobiology your entire life to now understanding that you'd have no interest in that in the real world and you want to go and be something entirely different. And so what does that look like for you when you feel like you've dedicated four years of your life towards something that you're not going to pursue? And can you succeed? Do you have that skill set? So I loved your answer about what motivated you to be working on this book. And I... I'm definitely going to read it. I've kind of in fits and starts been working on versions of something like this for myself. And it's 
it's because of something that, you know, there's a podcast that I love. It's Tim Ferriss's, and he says, you write a book not because you want to see your book out there, you know, sold at a bookstore. You write it because it is bouncing around in your head, and it's just more of a relief to get it out on a piece of paper and to get it out of your head. And so it's kind of come out for me in— um, op-eds or articles of what it's like to kind of lose identity and and try to figure that out again. And so I think as individual athletes, our paths are so different. And so I'm going to be excited for us to to compare notes. And I definitely want to keep in touch with you on this. Um, but I think I think it's such a powerful thing that you're doing. And just to really highlight. Um, you know, what we see on social media, this epidemic of of loneliness, even though we've never been more globally connected, but we're all behind screens. I think that's just really powerful to call out and to let people know that, um, you know, what they're feeling is normal based on how technology has evolved and that we can do something about it and we can re-engage. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. and, and, and so leaving from, you know, this book that you're working on, I really love to find out um, core influences, whether they're events or books. And, you know, I know that you are constantly seeking to to improve. And so I was wondering, are there any uh, books that have absolutely changed your life or or kind of moments in time or conversations you've had where you've just had like a complete value shift and just, you know, seen the world differently? I, I think that happened for me with, you know, things like reading the, uh, I guess, like the Tao Te Ching and uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, um, his Great book. Sur- yeah, mm-hmm. surviving his time in a concentration camp. And like there are books like this and these moments where you just reassess your life and your lens for life. And and so I, I'd be very curious to hear what, what yours might be. Yeah, there's been there, there hasn't been one specific book I would say that has changed the lens at which I view the world. It's all been these incredible insightful kind of reminders of, you know, like what's important. For for many years, I really, I, I carried with me this burden of I have to win outside of sport in the same way that I won inside of sport. I have to. And if I don't, I failed. I am a complete failure. And so that's, you know, it's, it's quite one side. But it's also very, it's very, it can be very toxic mentally to live a life for, for, for what? To be celebrated um, in the business world versus pursuing something that you enjoy doing. And, and it's difficult, right? Because I don't, I don't think that anyone can say by any perspective, like, look, just do what you love to do and everything will make sense. I don't think it, I don't think it works that way. I think it's, it, it potentially can be much, much more, how do I put this? Um, it can be more fulfilling, right? When you figure out that they're, the path to success, to fulfillment, to happiness is, I think, is within yourself. That, that's, that's really kind of the most important thing. And a lot of the answers, actually, that you seek are within yourself. These books and these reminders of these amazing philosophers and writers from around the world, whether it's, whether it's Tim and all of the work that he's done through his podcast, whether it's through you know, um, my fascination with longevity or whether it's you know, philosophical or there's, look, there's amazing written content out there. I think for me personally, what has stood out is kind of just like the same way I approached my sport was kind of taking bits and pieces from everyone and kind of forming my own lens on what is important. How can I have the greatest possible impact on my own personal life, on my family's life, on my loved one's life and on strangers' lives? And then how can I share this with more people? How can I use this as a leverage? uh, You know, how can I use media and social as a leverage to impart better type of insight, not as me, the expert Apollo Ono, but as Apollo Ono, the human being who has gone and made mistakes and learned and wants to share those with people. And hopefully those can also learn the same perspective. So like what books, I mean, there's, there's so many I'm reading I've got like a weird collection of books. So like with the book I'm reading right now, one of them um, is called The Rise and Fall of Great Nations. Um, it's, a, yeah, it's, it's a very thick kind of, it's, it, it's, I think it's a great read. Some people think it's very dull, but Who's it's basically talks about That sounds familiar. Paul Kennedy. So the book is Paul Kennedy. Um, it's The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. Now this book has not changed my life. 
but it's definitely changed my lens in terms of, you know, like potentially in our lifetime, the U.S. is not going to be number one. You know, like there's a real threat coming from other outside sources. Anyway, so I've got like a very eclectic. I've got things that I've read from Nikos Kazantzakis, who's this Greek writer and philosopher, you know, Zorba the Greek and that kind of, a lot of those, that mentality of carrying the struggle further, you know, whether you win or not is not your concern. Uh, do not, you know, that's, that's none of your concern. What you can focus on is basically process versus prize. That's the only thing that you should be really concerned with is growing, leaving no stones unturned in your preparation. Um, and then on the other side, you know, I've got like a fast, I, I've just, I, I read a lot. So whether it's podcasts or reading, I'm constantly consuming information. And I think it's the own hunger and search for two things. One, I feel like I'm still very behind um, in my life because I was so blunted by this kind of singular focus. So I just feel like I'm catching up. Uh, and then two, I'm just fascinated by by works of of art that are really interesting. So whether it's Tao Te Ching or, you know, whether it's, you know, a book like, you know, uh, um, about Muhammad Ali or anyone. I just, I, yeah. I it's think, kind of random, but I, there's not one book that stands out that kind of changed my lens. Yeah, I think this kind of collection really speaks to the fact that we had such singular lives and now it's making up for lost time. It was one thing repeated over and over for two decades and now it's just a realization of how big the world is and how small our roles and lives are in the context of history and the rise and fall of empires and nations. And uh, I'm I'm right there with you, so we're going to have to exchange reading lists in, and podcasts for the future. And I guess that kind of brings us to the end of an incredible um, conversation. And there's one question that I ask all my guests, and for non-Olympians, when I ask, it's... Um, pretty apparent what it should be, but with Olympians, it's a little different because I'm asking you what your Olympic moment is that's not Olympic, uh, but in life. So the kind of moment, that intensity of meaning and fulfillment, and I won't use that word with you. I'll find something else. Um, no, I like fulfillment. I like fulfillment. I like it. I like it. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll ease into it. Yeah. Um, fulfillment's important. Very important. What would that be for you in life? Have you had a moment that that aha, oh my God, grand moment that that we feel at the Olympics? Have you had that somewhere else in life? I, I you know, I've been blessed. Yes, I have. I've had it multiple times, actually. Can you share uh, one? Yeah. So I, I think. The one that I would be willing to share that I think is the most important is how it relates to what I believe, what is important in life, what what is important to me. That was my aha moment, right? For years I had, when I retired, because I was so driven to win so badly outside of sport and not to win based on who I was as this kind of public figure in the U.S., that drove me to go to Asia and do all different types of speculative and different types of ventures and businesses that I had no background in and I hyper immersed myself. So I I thought that's what I wanted. I thought that's what was important. And it was nothing to do with the businesses. It was actually to do with the process. And so I found my aha moment was understanding that the things that I think are the most important is the freedom to explore for myself, the freedoms to explore and whatever it takes for me to do that. Um, I don't need this item or this or what I think is on my blueprint of things that, you know, your rich list of you think will make you truly happy. There's nothing wrong with that wealth creation. I think that that's important, but I think it was the, 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 the target still is too much on the prize and not enough on the process. And so I just understood that my aha moment was, this was recently, this is probably like five or six years ago where I reached a point in my career from a business perspective. And also it was far enough out of the Olympic games where I wasn't being celebrated as, you know, still getting celebrated sometimes when I go speak and do these events or high performance workshops and such, but it was much more about like Apollo owner, the human being, like, what is it Apollo that you want to do when you leave this earth? You know, when you, when your time in this vessel is finished, like what are the things that you can say? And you know, whether I speak to someone who's 80 years old, it was at that moment 
where I really identified within myself that I believe the most important thing for me is happiness and fulfillment. And how can I accelerate my path to getting those things? Uh, and also just understanding that because of the attributes that I have learned through sport, um, I can actually really pursue just about anything. Now, I'm not going to go and become the next coder, right? I mean, that's just, that's, some things are a little bit out of the wheelhouse. I'm not going to go be an incredible linguist, right? And go speak like 12 different languages and go translate for different you know, nations. But I think within the construct of what is possible is it's very freeing. And um, I think also the aha moment was just recognizing like what and how that I can have some sort of a positive impact, um, not only on my own personal life, but also on others. That to me, we always talk about feel, right? And that emotional feel, I feel like that feels good when you go attend a charity event or a philanthropic idea that, that feels like you're doing something right. Um, and that can be replicated time and time again, regardless of whether it's in that particular sector or you're doing something for yourself, you're just going for a run. So it just changed my perspective. Um, that aha moment was a combination of like understanding what's important, having gratitude and using that um, on a daily basis and actually really feeling it and feeling grateful for the mistakes and the problems and the challenges that I've, that I've done and faced and I've made. And then looking at it from a different lens um, versus this is a problem. I don't like this person. This person always brings me pain and saying like, this is an amazing opportunity to grow as a human being. And that's just shifted my, my outlook on life. It's made me more present, more happy, um, more excited. Um, because for me at the end of the day, I just, I, I want to, I want to look forward to everything I'm doing. Like our time spent today, I was thinking in my head, this is exciting. I've not talked to Sasha before. I know she has many, many different facets to her personality. She seems very unique. She's had success outside of the sport. She has gone through a lot. She's been open about her transformation and transition. So I was very excited. But I think having that outlook on all things, whether it's having this cup of tea, whether it's, you know, like sharing with you this really boring book. Sorry, Paul, it's not that boring. <laughs> You know, like whatever it is, like, I think that eternal, enthusiastic, like just always being enthusiastic. It's the joie that, that, de vivre, that, that excitement for life. And I think that's, yeah, that sums up yeah. what an Olympic moment should be, right? It's, it's yeah. kind of this beautiful understanding of, of what life's about and a celebration. Yeah. So that yeah. was, that couldn't have been a better answer. And, and likewise, I was so excited to... Uh, to speak with you today. We'll have to catch up again when you're in New York and you can ask me yes. a lot more questions. And um, thank you so much for making the time to come on today. Of course. Thank you for having me, Sasha. Look forward to seeing you in person. Yes, likewise. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.